morning after the last couple. Hey, it's good to be back in the theater, right? <laughs> after the last follow your teacher out the door there. Last week we uh, we came to the theater and the door was locked and we still had church, so it all worked out. Um, it, it was good uh, to see our community come together and, and rally to. Um, get chairs and set stuff up out on the patio and someone ran and got coffee and donuts and all this stuff was uh, amazing to watch everybody kind of rally together again to make sure that that uh, was able to happen and we had a sweet gathering over on the patio. Church on the patio might be a thing. I don't know. It's kind of nice, right? Um, maybe not so much today. It was a little bit hotter than it was last Sunday. Anyway, really good um, to be back in the theater, and uh, we'll be here uh, next Sunday as well. And then, as you heard, Church in the Park coming up in two weeks. And I just really quickly want to say that our last Church in the Park at the end of June there was really sweet, just a really great time of watching, as Reed talked about, people having conversations and getting to know each other and just that time and space to have a little bit more uh, room to connect uh, with people that, you know, maybe you just say hi to in passing or haven't had a chance to get to know a little bit better. So I can't wait. The next one coming up again in two weeks. Make sure uh, you guys are ready uh, for that. All right, before we get into this, and if you have a Bible, you can open to Matthew chapter 21. If you need a Bible, raise your hand and uh, one of our uh, teammates will come around and make sure you have a, a Bible. If you need to take that home with you, you may. That's a, our gift to you as well. But as you're looking at Matthew 21, I just want to say this. Uh, we're like right dead center in the middle of summer. And I don't know about you, but for me, there was this sense of like, oh man, summer's going to be great. Like we'll relax and it'll be way easier and, you know, life will slow down. And then it has been like the total opposite of that. It's been, uh, Amy went to San Diego for a week and our kids have been in camp and, and my sister moved to Uganda. So we went to say goodbye to them and uh, we celebrated our anniversary this week. And all of this is like really good stuff and, and a really fun time during the summer, but it's almost more busy in some ways, definitely a different rhythm almost every single week than normal. I don't know if you are in that similar kind of place. What I wanted to do this morning to begin our time is just pause for a minute. And if you are feeling scattered, hurried, busied, frenzied, whatever it might be, just wanted to give a, a, a moment, sort of pause, to take a deep breath, to catch our breath, and to invite God's spirit, it's already here, of course, with us, but to invite God's spirit to prepare our hearts for the rest of our time together this morning. So let's uh, bow our heads and close our eyes. I'll kind of give you a minute to do that, and then I'll pray before we get going here in Matthew 21. Heavenly Father, there are so few moments in our lives where we are able to just be still. With all the different demands that uh, may be on us, depending on what's going on in our life, what stage of life we might be in, those moments are rare and they are special. And I pray, God, that we would find the space to create more of that so that we can commune with you, hear with you, not be distracted by all the other competing forces and voices in our life. 
So Father, this morning as we step into Scripture, would you still our hearts, would you calm our minds, would you help us to be here, to be present in this moment so that we can hear from you? And not just hear from you, but, but know, be convicted in what we need to do in response. What we need to do to uh, live out the truth that we encounter as we open up Scripture and look at Jesus and see the things that he did and the way that he acted and the, the words that he spoke. Help us to be a community of people who practice what we learn, who practice what we hear, uh, who uh, don't just take in information, but actually live the kind of life that you have invited us to live in. So again, God, whether our life right now is full of really great things, but, but busyness, maybe it's full of pain and, and confusion. There's things that have been really difficult for us this summer. Whatever that might be, would you hold it for us in this moment so that we can be uh, present and attentive to your spirit speaking to us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Matthew 21 is where we are uh, this morning. Just a quick recap to help us remember where we are if you haven't um, been uh, a part of the conversation recently. This will help build some context for where we are this morning. Last Sunday, out on the patio, we saw that Jesus has finally arrived in Jerusalem. This is the, the city that he has been headed to for quite some time. And he arrives triumphantly, right? Riding this donkey, but there's this huge crowd of people, and they're, they're grabbing palm branches and waving them, putting them on the ground, and setting out their, their coats for him to travel over. And they're saying all these incredible words over him as he enters into Jerusalem, this great moment where people are celebrating and recognizing Jesus as king. And the expectation here is that Jesus would then take power, that he would assume power and take on this throne, that he would then drive out Israel's enemies and usher in this new era, this new age of peace and freedom, a time of reestablishing the power and authority of Israel now that Rome would have been banished, the Roman occupation dealt with and gotten rid of finally, but we saw that he doesn't do any of that. He goes straight to the temple. He goes right to the heart of Jewish religious life. And he sees what's going on there, the buying and selling of animals. He sees the, the exchange of money that's happening in the temple courts. And he kind of like throws this tantrum, right? Knocks the tables over, kicks all of these people out. His first move is not to go after the external oppressors of Rome. He goes after the internal corruption of Israel. This is... Uh, very confrontational, very controversial, and, and in doing so, Jesus leaves no doubt that his messiahship, his kingdom, is first and foremost a judgment on Israel and the worship that was taking place in the temple. So today, as we get now deeper into chapter 21, we begin in verse 23. Jesus has returned to the temple, which is a very bold move, right? If you go somewhere and, and throw a big fit and, and, and like mess everything up, uh, kind of gutsy to come back to that place the very next day and keep at it. So Jesus shows up again. This attracts attention and this attracts another round of confrontation. We begin in verse 23. Jesus entered the temple courts and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders and the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? They asked. 
By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Now, again, a little bit more context. Keep in mind that this is a few days before Passover. Passover was this major religious festival celebrated every year. It was where the people of Israel remembered what God had done for them in bringing them out of slavery in Egypt. And so tons of people would travel to Jerusalem for the celebration. There's all kinds of people around. This is a very public moment taking place between Jesus and the religious leadership. These elders know Jesus has the crowd on his side at this moment anyway. And this is important because in their honor-based culture, the Pharisees, the leaders, they cannot just kick Jesus out. Even though they have the authority, the right to do that, they risk losing the crowd and losing face. So instead, they ask him this question that they hope will expose Jesus in some way. Who gave you this authority? Either Jesus is going to have to say that his authority comes from God, which in their eyes would be blasphemy, or he will have to say that it comes from some other structure. I I went to this school, and I studied under this rabbi, and I have this degree, and they can say, no, you don't, because we're in charge of that. We did not give you that kind of credential. You are a fraud. So Jesus is either going to be blaspheming or exposing himself as a fraud. Look at how he responds, though. Jesus answers the question with a question, and in doing so, completely flips the whole situation back on them. I will uh, will also ask you one question, Jesus says. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism. This is a reference to John the Baptist, Jesus' predecessor, his cousin, the one who came before him to prepare the way for Jesus. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? They get together, they discuss it among themselves, and they say, if we say from heaven, he will ask, why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, we're afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So basically, the same trap that they tried to lay on Jesus, he turns on them, and they're stuck They don't want to look foolish in front of Jesus. This would be losing face, and they don't want to cross the people. They are afraid of the people. This is losing the crowd. So they go with, well, you don't know. And Jesus responds with, well, then I won't tell you. This should remind you, again, if you've been around for this conversation, this should remind you of Matthew chapter 13. Jesus tells a bunch of parables about understanding the the kingdom of heaven. And one of the things he says is that those who have will be given more. Those who seek will be given more. And those who don't, it will be taken away. This is what we're seeing right here. I don't know. We don't know. Well, then I won't tell you. Now, kind of a, a, a somber conversation, end to that conversation. But the story doesn't really end here. Jesus doesn't just let these guys off the hook with, well, then I won't tell you. He actually does continue to go after them, but in a very interesting way. He does not call them out directly. That will happen in Matthew chapter 23, and it is epic. Just get ready for that one. Here, though, he goes after them by telling a bunch of stories. Theologian Brad Kallenberg writes, Our penchant for telling stories is a clue to the irreducibly narrative fabric of our existence. 
any account of the human person or human experience that leaves out narrative is grossly reductionistic. Divine revelation, he writes, comes to us in the form of a story because God's dealings with us are narratively shaped rather than theoretically driven. In other words, God sent us a gospel rather than a philosophical treatise. Any account of the human experience that leaves out narrative is grossly reductionistic. Now, quick side note, this is totally a Steve Soapbox moment, so just bear with me here for a minute, all right? One of the things that, one of my pet peeves is when um, someone will be telling me about like a, a pastor or a book or, or some person who's a teacher, and they'll say something to the effect of, oh, they're really good, I like listening to them, but they tell too many stories. I want more meat. And if you're like, what did he just say? Meat is something that Christians will say when they want more scripture. All right? Now, here's the thing about all of this, okay? <clears throat> scripture is a story. And Jesus tells stories over and over and over again. God's dealings with us are narratively shaped. The question we should be asking is not, was there enough scripture in it? The question we should be asking is, was it true? Did it point to Jesus? Did it point me towards more grace and peace and joy and love and patience and kindness? Or was it just a bunch of scripture verses strung together? You see, a, a, a teaching can be full of scripture and still not tell the truth. Are you with me? So the question we need to be asking is not, did it have enough scripture? The question is, did it tell the truth? And sometimes you can tell the truth with a story. This is what Jesus does here. He tells them three stories, and he asks them some significant questions that go along with each of those stories. The first question is this, what do you think? And then he tells a story. There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later, he changed his mind and he went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir, but then he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? Now, out of the three stories we're looking at this morning, this one is the most straightforward. The answer here is obvious, and the elders get it right. The first, they say, right? The one who said he wasn't going to go, but then eventually did. Now, really, the best scenario here would be what? They both go, yeah, we'll go, and then they actually go and do it, right? We, we talk to our kids about this all the time. If they were obedient right away and with a happy heart, that would have been the best scenario. This, though, is a story about the lesser of two rebellions, and so they picked the one who at least eventually did what the father said. Now look at how Jesus unpacks this. He says to them, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came, here again, this reference back to John the Baptist. John came to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw all of this, you did not repent and believe him. Now, Jesus names here very explicitly what we've been seeing develop for several weeks. This actually goes all the way back 
to January, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' first big teaching in Matthew. It's the unexpected people, the ones who seem the farthest who actually get it, who seem to get it and understand what Jesus is all about first. And it's the ones who look good and say all the right things that are often the most opposed to what Jesus is up to. What we see here is God's desire is not for moral perfection. Once again, God's desire is for right relationship. And what does he say? He says we enter right relationship through repentance. Not through performance, through repentance. Now, quick distinction here. We are a community that is going to talk a lot in the coming months and year about practicing the ways of Jesus. And I want to just make this distinction here because there's a big difference between practice and performance. A practice is a regular discipline that becomes an ingrained habit. Spiritual practices are disciplines that give structure to our relationship with God that hopefully help us have a more real and honest relationship with God. If I don't intentionally make time, put some discipline into my life to make time to be with my wife Amy, we tend to sort of drift, right? This is how life works. But if we are intentional about things, these things then become habits, That's what practice is all about. A performance, though, as we're using it here, is fundamentally dishonest. It's pretending. It's saying, I'll show up, and then not showing up. So to say God values relationship over performance doesn't mean that we don't do anything. Of course, it means we respond to Jesus in a variety of different ways. But the relationship takes precedence And the practices support the relationship. Now Jesus keeps going. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. And he put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants, beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now, here, Jesus, the second story, he's tightening the screws, right? This is much more, uh, getting much more directly to the heart of the matter than what came before. Now we're getting to the Pharisees, the elders, the leaders, their acceptance or rejection of Jesus. And again, Jesus using story to unmask their hearts, their rotten hearts, and to foreshadow what's going to happen in the not-too-distant future. Next big question, therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And here's their response. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end. And he will rent the vineyards to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Now, this is actually a pretty astute answer to the question, which shows that for these guys, the, the, the issue for them was not information or knowledge. It was never a problem of knowledge for the religious 
leadership. The problem was that they were caught up in the wrong story. And they did not see themselves in the story that Jesus was telling them. This again, why story is so important and neglecting story can cause great damage. The overwhelming emphasis in the church in the West is on information. Take another class, read another book, listen to another sermon. Now, I, I am wired this way. I love learning and reading and gaining more information. And so this is preaching to me as much as it is to anyone this morning. But we have reduced spiritual formation to information acquisition. Let me say that again. We have reduced spiritual formation to information acquisition. We end up treating human beings like you're just a brain walking around on two legs. But you are not just a brain. You are a whole being, heart, soul, mind, and strength. You have emotions and desires and loves and hopes and dreams. Our deepest problem, what the writers of Scripture call sin, is not a lack of information. The problem is we have bought into a faulty story. Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Here he's kind of poking at all of the knowledge that they have. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. And if you remember earlier in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus talks about this idea of fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They knew he was talking about them. And so they looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. Again, Jesus continues to make this clear to them. Not only are they not entering the kingdom first, they're going to miss it. It's going to be taken away. And the amazing and sad thing here is that they get it. There's no confusion here. He's talking about us. But rather than repent, rather than turn, from that story, rather than jump off that sinking ship, they dig in and they look for a way to get rid of Jesus. Now, if it were me, I'd probably call it good there, but Jesus goes right into round three. Okay, and this is the darkest of the three stories. Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready. But those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. 
So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? And the man was speechless. We don't know. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Now, several similar themes emerge in this story. We have a king and a son. We have invitation and rejection. We see the inversion principle of the kingdom at play once again as the expected guests don't show up and the guests who do come are not the type that you would expect. We also see that there are significant consequences to rejecting the invitation of the king. Now, why does Jesus end this interaction with this story? It's kind of dark, and it's repetitive of things we've already seen, and we just learned that the Pharisees and the other leaders get the point. Why tell this last story? First, Jesus, I think, wants to emphasize that the kingdom of God is open to anyone who would accept the invitation. The kingdom of God is open to anyone who would accept the invitation. The, The call to come and be a part of this wedding banquet goes to everyone. To put this in theological language, the kingdom is open to anyone who repents, anyone who turns from the story that they are living in and chooses a different way. That's what repent means, to turn from. Turn from these other stories, these other things that are calling uh, for us to worship and follow them and instead worship and follow Jesus. Once again, this should bring us back to Matthew chapter 13. Jesus there talks about those who have the ears to hear. And we learned in those parables that the secret of the kingdom is not insider knowledge. Again, not information. It's a not about having the right answers. It's about seeking more of Jesus. And in seeking more of him, finding right relationship. Now here's where I want to pause for just a moment and kind of give you a, a, a challenge. We have here in 2019 in the United States of America, in the palm of our hands, access to more information than any human beings who have ever lived on the face of the earth. For church people in particular, there is a great danger in consuming another sermon, another podcast, reading another book, going to another experience, but then not doing anything with that information, not responding to what we are learning and reading and encountering in those moments. Jesus, in Matthew 13, talks about a people who are ever hearing and never understanding, ever seeing and never perceiving. There's a great danger in being inundated with information and not doing anything with it. And so I wonder if for some of us, maybe we just need to fast from information and instead practice one or two things that we've already learned. Respond to one or two things that you are already uh, wrestling through or thinking about or processing. Less information acquisition and more responsiveness. 
maybe a good place to start. Just pick one thing from this Matthew series and, and just go for it. Spend the next couple of weeks or months practicing that thing. Jesus, again, not looking for people who simply wanted to know more. He was looking for people who were ready to obey, who were ready to turn and follow him with their whole lives. So the kingdom is open to anybody, but we have to turn and we have to accept it. Second, Jesus wants us to see the danger of spiritual coasting. The humble, soft heart seeks more of Jesus and finds it. This is the repeated promise in Matthew. The hard heart not only doesn't find more, but eventually what they have gets taken away. And again, this is harsh-sounding language to us, but there are so many areas of our lives where this makes sense. When I was in seminary, my professors would say about our Greek and Hebrew, use it or lose it. There's this truth that if we have a skill and we stop using it, uh, we don't just pick up where we left off. There's that phrase, like riding a bike, right? Not everything is like riding a bike. <laughs> we almost have to start over again. I started playing the guitar when I was in high school, and I played a ton of music at the end of high school and throughout college. And then um, I had kids, and I don't have time to do that anymore. And so now when I pick up a guitar, I can still, uh, my fingers know what to do, but I've lost these calluses on my fingertips. And so about five minutes in, I'm like, oh my gosh, my hand's going to fall off. It hurts so bad. Use it or lose it. When my normal pattern of exercise gets thrown off, I, I don't just stay at that level of fitness I start to lose it. And then when I get back into it, I have to build back up to where I was before. There is no neutral ground here is one of the things Jesus wants us to see. Again, the danger of spiritual coasting. We are either becoming more like Jesus or we are becoming less like Jesus. We are being formed by Jesus or we are being formed by something else. We're living in his story or we are living in a different story. Again, there is a danger in coasting. And then finally, Jesus wants us to understand that there are consequences for rejecting the invitation. Now, obviously, there's a, a consequence for the Pharisees and these other leaders in losing the kingdom. They're now on the outside looking in. But there's also this consequence for those who show up to the wedding party but don't appreciate it Properly, And there's this weird bit in verses 11 and 12 where, where this person shows up and they're not wearing the right clothes. And there's all kinds of debate about what does that mean and what is the significance of the clothing, all that kind of stuff. I think a simple reading here is really important. I think Jesus includes this character in the story because the cycle will repeat. We can think, oh, I showed up, it's all good. And yet we can still not value our life in the kingdom we very easily fall back into this insider mentality. We stop seeking more. We start to coast. But when we realize the grace and the mercy that God has shown us through Jesus, we show up, and we show up in appropriate ways. We value this pearl of great price that we have found. The story that we live from changes everything, all right? The story that we live from changes 
everything. Two stonemasons were asked the same question, this question, do you like your job? One stonemason responded, I've been working on this wall, this is a stonemason, you know, building a wall with bricks and various other things. I've been building this wall for as long as I can remember. The work is monotonous. I'm out in the scorching hot sun all day. The stones are heavy. Lifting them day after day is backbreaking. I'm not even sure if this project will be completed in my lifetime. But it's a job. It pays the bills. The other stonemason working on the same wall responded this way. I've been working on this wall for as long as I can remember. The work can be monotonous. It can be really hot out here, and lifting these stones day after day is backbreaking. I'm not even sure if this project will be completed in my lifetime. But I love my job because I'm building a cathedral. I love my job because I'm building a cathedral. The story that you live from changes everything. Two things that I want us to walk away with this morning. The first is this, a reminder of the power and importance of story. Okay, here's my controversial statement of the day. That first stonemason did not need a Bible study. He needed a better story. Paying the bills or building a cathedral. His intellectual understanding of what he was doing was fine. In fact, both stonemasons understood what they were doing in the same way. It's hot out here. We're lifting heavy stones. We're not going to finish in our lifetime. It's backbreaking, all this kind of stuff. But that first stonemason, the story that he lived from was deeply problematic. It's a job. It pays the bills. Second stonemason living a much better story. I'm building a cathedral. Which leads to the second takeaway, this question, what kind of story are you living in? The chief priests and the elders were living in a story that was all about preserving a tradition and protecting the boundaries that they'd set up around that tradition. It was a story about information and insider knowledge and credentials. It was a story about appearances and performance. It was about paying the bills. Jesus, though, inviting people into a very different kind of story. A story about relationship and transformation. About this direct access to God. A story about truth and grace and mercy. About transformation because of what he does for us on the cross. Jesus invites us to build a cathedral. Brad Kallenberg again, to be a Christ follower is to become a character who contributes to the continual telling, retelling, and re-retelling of Christ's story. The telling, the retelling, and the re-retelling of Christ's story. There's this tendency, I think, for all of us, myself, again, very much included, to go back to a particularly important moment in our life. For me, it's easy to go back to college and the transformation that happened during that stage of my life. But the invitation of Jesus is to telling and retelling and re-retelling the story. There are new invitations every day. At your work, in parenting, in marriage, in friendship, for another story to be told. 
to have a new experience of grace and peace and mercy. We are not just paying the bills. We are building a cathedral. So again, what kind of story are you in? And are you contributing to the telling, the retelling, and the re-retelling of the Jesus story? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess uh, first and foremost how easy it is for us to default to information and, and to knowledge and to think that that's the, either the measure of how well we are doing or that's how we're going to solve everything. But underneath that is this story that we live from. And it requires a lot of work to dig down and figure out what that really is. And I pray that you would give us the courage to do that. Are we performing? Uh, are we trying to earn your approval? Are we trying to earn someone else's approval? Are we trying to score points? Are we trying to look good, present a good image to the world? Have we given up on all of that because it doesn't seem to be working for us, but then we fall into a, a victim story? Or are we living from the story that says you are loved and redeemed and saved through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus? Are we paying the bills or are we participating in the building of a cathedral? Father, I pray for us this morning that we would choose that better story, that we would repent from whatever other things are capturing our attention, whatever other stories we might find ourselves in, and instead choose the death and resurrection of Jesus and begin to follow in his ways, to put into practice the things that he invites us to practice as a way to live the kind of life that he offers us. And then, God, as we do that, would we help retell this story death and resurrection, death to life as a way to point people towards the good news of Jesus. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.